Well, with uh, especially with um, experience, yes. At the at the beginning, uh, that was my biggest challenge was to and fear. I would say when I was <laughs> when I was very young, when I started uh, a new series of concerts with a new orchestra, uh, I was I was absolutely terrified, you know, to to be put in in front of a group of sixty or eighty or one hundred people that I didn't know. And with the experience uh, came the, well, just the joy. So I'm, I'm always happy to meet, especially a new orchestra. I'm very happy to meet an orchestra that I know very well, but was the Wiener Philharmonica. I, I was in May in, at the Staatsoper in the opera, and that was my 250th performance with them. Amazing. So, so of course, uh, it's always a joy. Today I'm talking to Friedrich Chaslin, conductor, composer, pianist and author. Such a great man with so much insight into music and art. Good afternoon, Friedrich. It's so great to meet you here on Zoom. Good afternoon, Petra. Same here. You are in your lovely studio, I see. So where are you based at the moment? Well, this studio, this music studio, is in uh, the heart of uh, Lorraine, which is um, not far from Strasbourg, not far from Luxembourg, so east of France. It's one of the of the wildest and uh, not very populated. Uh, it's not a desert, of course. It's very green, but let's say there are not uh, as many human beings as in the rest of France. So it's um, okay. it's very calm, uh, perfect to work and here. Um, I've set this recording studio in the ex. Um, uh, it, it was the ex um, city hall of this. Uh, well, the city hall of a village that has 92 inhabitants. Of course, it's not a big thing, <laughs> but this is this used to be a this used to be actually a museum, because the story of this village is incredible. It was destroyed during World War One and rebuilt by a donation of a rich American woman was famous for being one of the first uh, feminists in America. Uh, okay. She was from a very rich family, but at the turn of the 20th century, and she insisted uh, on her father, who was a very rich man, to uh, build, uh, she contributed to build the Vassar College in America, in New York, which is a college, an excellency college for girls, for women. And uh, she... Um, so she spent her life, she was living alone, uh, she was single all, all her life, and she was devoted totally, um, she dedicated her life to charity. And during World War One, she won, she was going with the Red Cross uh, all around this, because I'm a couple of kilometers from Verdun, Verdun is famous for being one of the heaviest battlefield of World War One. Mm -hmm. So Miss, uh, Miss Bell Skinner, that was her name, Bell Skinner, was in the Red Cross and uh, going from village to village that were one after another totally grounded by the by the bombardments and bombings and uh, offering not only um, help as a nurse but as well uh, uh, as the daughter of an extremely rich man you know, with a fortune comparable to John Rockefeller or something like that. And funny enough, all those villages uh, rejected uh, or offered because uh, uh, it's been bombed here a lot by the Germans, but as well by the Americans, by the English, or for the people, for the local people here, the Americans were not so welcome. And in, she came to that village that is on the top of a big hill, and the people greeted her with a, a big warmth, and she was touched, and the, the village was totally grounded as well, including the castle. And she rebuilt it, and that's why you have this sign, historical monument of the 20th century, which is quite mm -hmm. funny to read. So that's the story of this village. And she insisted on having this um, city hall as the first, uh, the city hall and the school to be the first to be rebuilt, even if there were so little inhabitants, but there were more at this time. And now uh, this has been after this, this, the room where I am staying here has been the home of another incredible woman who was a painter of the school of Monet. And as many of those uh, female painters, she was a bit put in the shadow by the big uh, Monet and others. And 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 she's been then uh, rediscovered during uh, after the Second World War. And they created a museum for paintings here. And then the paintings were all purchased by a rich uh, collector who <laughs> bought absolutely every single painting that was in this room. Uh -huh. So he created, well, good for the paintings because they, he created a room in the Nancy uh, Museum 
where she has no uh, home. And this room has been uh, then empty for many, many years, many decades. And when I moved here uh, during COVID, um, I discovered that this room was uh, at a perfect acoustic and I decided to create a, a recording studio, not only for me, but for a lot of friends. We, we've been already making four CDs here and this, uh, and I have been writing a lot of music to, opera, to complete operas here. <laughs> so, Amazing. Uh, yeah. It's, it's incredible to be in this place that is... Uh, so rich of, uh, of of incredible stories, you know. All of the stories are you could make a movie. <laughs> yes, and yeah. the, it's so interesting that it attracts that building attracts all the artists because now you are there and you creating. And previously, it was it was painting, and so it's amazing that it can be like that. You know that that uh, that that building attracts the artists. Yeah, that, that reminds me a little bit, of, even if every, every detail is different, but a little bit when I was in music director in the, at the Santa Fe Opera in, in, in New Mexico, uh, there was um, the story of Georgia O'Keeffe, who was an incredible painter, was extremely popular in America. And she moved as well. Uh, she moved from New York and from the big cities. She moved to that little village next to Santa Fe and found this home where she spent the rest of her life painting, etc. And now the home... Uh, is have a museum, but as, as have a residency for other artists. Uh, so it's important that um, I, I have a very good friend who lives a couple of kilometers away from Paris in the first home of Monet before he moved to Giverny and this fantastic house with this fantastic Japanese garden that he he painted in the Nymphias, etc. But he, he he first he first had his home in a house next uh, to Paris and. So his home has been purchased by the state, but is given as a residency for artists as well. I mean, it's important. It's important. It can be sometimes. Um, it can be sometimes challenging, or it can even be totally blocking some people to be uh, to be aware that oh my God, I'm in the home of uh, this or that. You know, yeah. like uh, trying to write music if you are in the in the house of Richard Wagner or something like that. It can yeah, be, can can be yeah. quite challenging. But it could be so. But when it's when when it's an artist that was a painter, I'm a musician, so it's complementary. Yeah. So yeah. it's uh, it's like we are giving each other a little hand, you know. She she from uh, the beyond, and me from here. And, yeah. yeah. But but do you? Uh, you said you also uh, close to nature. So do you get inspired by nature? Oh yes, by default, um, the calm the calmness of nature. I'm. I'm not like those. I mean, I, as I will always say, I always used to say that uh, the Viennese composers, especially uh, of the 19th century, they were all um, they were all getting their inspiration from the Wienerwald. You know, do you you know yeah. many stories of Beethoven walking for hours in the Wienerwald, Brahms who was walking hours hours and hours in the Wienerwald. You would meet him. Uh, in between uh, the in between the woods, and he was he would not even talk to you because he was totally immersed in his uh, thoughts and in his music. So that's the uh, I think the routine of a Viennese composer. I don't know today, but used to be uh, uh, finding inspiration in the Wienerwald. So nature was very important, uh, and I remember my first years as a student at the Mozarteum in in Salzburg. Uh, where I was, I was spending a lot of time because nature is very, very deep and very powerful in Austria, mm -hmm. and I, I realized in Austria you can only understand. <laughs> I, that was my motto: you can only understand Brahms and Schubert if you, if you walk in the nature, if mm -hmm. you walk outside in the nature in Austria, then you will understand Schubert and and Brahms. It's maybe a little bit exaggerated, but I, I, I think yeah, that's. Um, that's it. But again, again, you know, the first time I realized that my my personal inspiration was going on fire, it was mm -hmm. when I when I moved to New York. I spent nine years in New York, really? and this city had an immediate an immediate result on my composition. You know, I've never I've never taken any any drug in my life, but I can imagine. That what cocaine or some other all really? other stuff <laughs> would do to me, but that was New York. You know, I didn't need yeah. any any drug. I I had New York, and New York was my drug. So to mm -hmm. say that nature uh, is indispensable to find the inspiration, I don't know. 
Mm. That can be either or. This can be either a, a walk in the wood alone with only the song of the birds, or it can be New York with this incredible hectic uh, life and very loud uh, mixture of people screaming and yeah. uh, taxis honking and uh, like you know the beginning of an American in Paris. Uh, yeah. Sort of gathering, uh, so that that, yeah, that depends on. Yeah, it's interesting because I've spoken to uh, quite a few composers and also choreographers during lockdown, and they said the same thing, that sometimes they need that sort of hustle and bustle, you know, that everyday life to get the inspiration. And then also sometimes they need the quiet, you know, the really mm. um, toned down atmosphere, and then then they can create. So you have to come. Two composers that I absolutely cherish, and they are at each of them are at one of the opposite of the spectrum. It's Gustav Mahler and Richard Strauss. So Gustav Mahler needed to be two months uh, alone in his little Häuschen, uh, you know, in his little country house, and he needed to be undisturbed for two months. And as he said, to to go down inside of, of his own self, you know, very very deep in, down into, like like you take an elevator down to go deep into his own soul. And it took him a couple of days until he reached that point. And you have Richard Strauss, who at the opposite, was always on the road, always conducting, always a music director here and there, and in Munich and in, in Vienna and etc. And he, he took some vacation, of course, but he had this discipline of whatever the day of the year, whatever the place uh, in the world, he would spend three hours working uh, on his composition. So there can be, as I said, there is no rule. It's just, um, it's just you know, what what is inspiration? It's a big mystery. Yeah. I, I know that for sure the best the best incentive is is love. That's oh, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. When you're in love, when you're in love, even even if it's a desperate love, if it, even if it's a like Wagner who was always uh, in love with something impossible, but mm -hmm. he needed that's the biggest incentive for a composer. I think a musician who is not in love can cannot go anywhere because mm -hmm. that's a big uh, fuel and engine for everything that we do. So whether it's real or it's in our imagination, but we need to be attracted by. It. Yeah. In the image, the image of someone who, who who gives you the desire to create something that has been always the the fuel of humanity. Yeah, and I think also sometimes the unrequited love, you know, that brings that um, artistic, I don't know, creativity out of oh, yeah. people. Yeah. But oh, yeah. The, about, the, yeah. The, the 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 very a very happy a very happy life and a very happy love. Um, it doesn't work because you 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 reach your goal. Your it's like your ship that arrived in its port. It, it yeah. a, it's it's arrived. It does it doesn't have to go anywhere else. Um, mm -hmm. I think uh, if you but you if you still have something to conquer or to let's say yeah, you still have a destination, mm -hmm. and that that's where it worked. It worked. It's like a it's like it's like a magnet. It mm -hmm. takes you somewhere. Uh, if you if you if you've arrived somewhere that, that doesn't doesn't work and um, any 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 creator that I can think of male or female always had that even we we talk I talk about George O'Keefe who was uh, uh, single almost of her life and especially until she lived until almost the age of one hundred and at the end of her life she was as create more more creative than ever. She was living alone, except for a Winchester, because she was she was shooting the the rattlesnakes or the coyotes that were sometimes okay. trying to get into her house, or or even, or even a burglar. I don't know, but mm -hmm. she that's where her only companion for was this was this gun, you know, this rifle. But um, mm -hmm. she must have had she must have had some some desire. Um, of uh, of an impossible, yeah. The, the other mm. part of us, it, it's the other part of your soul that you're looking for when you're an artist. You're yeah. looking for something, some the lost, the lost paradise. Uh, you know anything like that? You know anything that is missing to your soul and that you need to rebuild through creativity. 
But now, uh, Frederick, you also you're also an author. You also wrote and and you talked about Mahler, uh, Gustav Mahler. Now, and what was the what was the interest actually to write about him? You mean uh, are you talking about my novel or yeah, about yeah. Ah, the novel? Yeah, um, being Gustav Mahler. Well, it was because um, yeah, I had two reasons. First of all. The book is a fiction. It's actually oh, okay. sometimes a, a kind of can sometimes be funny. It's 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 funny sometimes because Mahler was full of humor. So um, mm -hmm. uh, I wanted I wanted to do two things. I wanted to um, explain what I was doing in this time. I was um, working on the reconstruction and the restoration and orchestration of the dance symphony that he left incomplete, and it has been already. Uh, rebuilt let's say but not to my liking i thought it could have been done better so that's the reason why I, I did it and i'm not the only one i think there have been i counted until nine 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 other reconstructions before me really <laughs> yeah but none of them i think uh, achieved the goal so i worked on that and uh, probably my reconstruction is, is is far from being perfect either but while i was doing that i was i was experiencing something very strange like like I had a voice inside of myself that that the part of Mahler was in my head, you know, because that's what happens when you work so much on on someone else's stuff and you start to have visions and hallucinations. And I was thinking, well, it would be funny actually to write a fiction where uh, a composer, a Viennese Kapellmeister, is uh, all of a sudden haunted by the real Gustav Mahler, who, for some reason that I explained technically, traveled full times. And landed uh, one one hundred years after his death into into the head of this poor Kapellmeister, who all of a sudden finds himself with the genius inside of his uh, in, inside of his head. So that was uh, the first motivation was uh, to uh, put as a novel what I was really experiencing, and give the, the the reader an opportunity to know more about Mahler because I really read very carefully the. Five thousand pages of his biggest, the biggest biography that there is about Mahler, where there is absolutely everything uh, you can know about Mahler, and I made a resume in two hundred and ten pages, and you you learn a lot if you don't know anything about Gustav Mahler. I think you learn a lot about him by reading these little books because my Mahler is very, very close to who was the real Mahler, and the second uh, motivation was that I I wrote previously a book that is more. A scholar's book, I would say. It's called The Music in Every Sense, but it's been translated by Berlo and Wien uh, in uh, Auf der Suche nach dem neuen Klang. So looking for the new the new tone, the new sound, you know, lo lo looking for the new sound or the new tone. And that book is a little bit more boring to read because it's very technical, but it was um, trying to explain to people who are not specifically musicians, but know a little bit about music, uh, how how music was born, what what purpose does it serve, uh, where is it going to, you know, what about contemporary music, was, is it difficult for the audience to to uh, apprehend the contemporary music, and uh, where is music going to, so, so it's, it's everything about music, music and, psych music and psychoanalysis, music and neurology, music and uh, music and everything, that's why I call it music in every sense in English, mm -hmm. and I was thinking after that, book i said why not to try to go a little bit further and explain to people what's what's happening in the composers and the conductor's head when he's composing and when he's conducting and i said i don't want to write another scholar boring book so i want to write it in the form of a novel that's why that, that's the two incentive for me incentives to to write this um, this novel about mother to to explain what I was doing uh, with my with the Tenth Symphony, and to explain to the people what what they, if it's possible, of course it's impossible, but what's happening in a composer's uh, head when he's composing, of course you cannot understand it because I would I could I would not be able to explain it to you even if uh, you put a gun on my on my head I would not be able to answer to you what's happening in the head of a composer. It's a, it's a big mystery. It's a, it's like when you're dreaming or. What's happening in your head while you're dreaming? So what's happening while you're composing? While you're composing, that's all. That's all I can then say. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've also wondered, you know, where where do a composer start? Because it's like a blank sheet of paper, and somewhere 
you know, do you find that the melody comes first in your head or um, or how do you start? Well, I would go back to Mahler again because Mahler said when he was 12 years old, I think, uh, he was asked by his neighbor, could you give, um, because he was already playing the piano in the, so all the building could hear that he was playing the piano. The neighbors could hear that he was playing the piano. He was not a genius of the piano, but he was he was playing a heavy, it was with a, a lot of temperament. So everybody was would think, wow, this child, that's something. And he, he already claimed everywhere he wanted to be a composer. And one of the neighbors one day said, could you teach my little girl, who was a bit younger than him, could you teach her how to compose? And of course, he was not a composer yet. He was still a child, yeah. But it was, it was very, he was very secure, you know. So he said, "Of course, of course, I will give her composition lesson." And he explained himself. Mother explained with his own words that I was telling this girl, "All we, all you have to do is improvise until you find something that you like." And then he realized that an adult. He said, "Well, I realized that I gave him, I gave this little girl the advice." to do what most of the composers do. I mean, they improvised on their piano until they find a good idea. And um, I think it's the best method because uh, improvisation, uh, I'm not talking about the jazz improvisers and those incredible people who improvise in concert, but every improvisation uh, starts to be a kind of trance after after a moment. You start entering a kind of state of mind where well, you're not yourself, you're not awake completely, you start to be a little bit in a dream. And that's where the best ideas are coming. And all of a sudden you have an idea, that you have music that comes on the top of your fingers and you, you don't know where it comes from. And then then comes the technique, uh, the composition technique to develop it, to um, to, to make it, to, to give it a form. So the more and more intellectual process start, but uh, the process of finding the idea is not intellectual at all. It's very spontaneous and it's digging into your uh, unconsciousness. You know, the, the part of your, the part of your mind that is not conscious, that is absolutely like in a dream, you know, because it's in the dream. If, if each of us in, in the dreams create words that, that are incredible and we when we wake up and say oh my god where did i find that you know where, where is it coming yeah. from we all have inside of ourselves those those incredible words that that are ready to that are ready uh, to show off but um like a composer a composer needs to develop techniques to 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 have that happening during his uh, during his daytime you know not only in the, in the dreams or you can you can find an idea that that happens as well especially for the melodic for the melodies but you can have ideas uh, especially when you're walking actually that's why the composers were walking a lot in, in the Wiener Wald mm -hmm. because um, actually even writers they say uh, it's either either you see you're sitting and and sipping a lot of whiskey and then you find you know if oh, okay. American writers American writers love to say you know I'm, yes I'm an alcoholic of course because I'm a writer uh, but um, or, or or walking but for me, for the music, uh, I, I think uh, walking is very, very good for finding an idea or walking or swimming or anything that is uh, as well puts you out of your uh, of your own thoughts, you know, mm -hmm. makes you makes you to makes you go in a kind of trance. Yeah. And a walk can be hypnotic as well. A long walk can yeah. be hypnotic after a moment. Yeah. And, and it's a movement and it's also maybe a type of rhythm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Uh, but do, did you as a young child already knew that you wanted to be a conductor? Oh, because you played the piano first. Yeah, a conductor, I don't know. My mother told me that when I was very, very young, like three or four, I, I was standing on, on a chair and I was moving my, my hands whenever the the whenever the, the turntable was playing music but i i realized that a lot of children do that it's very it's quite natural for a lot of children to start moving their hands and play the conductor even even if they have not seen a conductor but we all, the, all children have some kind of um instinctive uh behaviors that uh that are i don't know written in our dna i don't know where, where it is exactly but it's um it's instinctive. It's like when I was, my mother told me when I was two years old, I was to the hospital because I had some 
problems here, the, the, the some glands that needed to be removed. Uh, it was very at, the, at this time all the children had died. You know, when they were there too, too many calls, we we needed to have a surgery. Uh, I don't remember what's the name of this thing in English, but um, that's not the point. The point is that when when I was in the, in this in this hospital, my mother told me that I was pointing to the nurses doing psh, 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 like I had a gun, and there was no TV at home. So I had, and I was two years old. So there was no chance, no no possibility that I had seen that, you know, on a, in a movie. Uh, so, so where did that come from? Mm-hmm. If not from a very very old instinct that that was coming back. So conducting and and firing again. <laughs> but I kept I kept I, I kept only with conducting for today. Oh, okay, thank goodness for that. <laughs> <laughs> but you played the piano as a child? Yeah, that's why my first instrument mm-hmm. yeah, when I was five. Yeah, and then the organ, because I loved I loved the organ because it was for me like a, an orchestra. I think that that's where my my love for orchestra came from because um, probably from the organ, or it's the organ that for me was anticipation of what an orchestra could be. But when I saw an orchestra the first time, it was after I started playing the organ because I started very young. I was nine years old. And I think my first concert, I must, my first concert with an orchestra, I must have been 10 or something like that. And it was quite, I wouldn't say it was a shock or something like it was a revelation, etc. But it, I found that, I found that incredibly exciting. And I realized, wow, it's like an organ, but uh, with human beings. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So I found that very beautiful. For me, the piano is a wonderful instrument. I play it every day. But um, I need the colors. I need uh, a piano. A piano has a lot of colors, but in black and white, it's abstract. It's abstract colors. But when you hear an oboe, when you hear a horn, a string section, uh, solo violin, then you have the real, the real colors. Well, for me, a, a conductor, actually, I, I'm always so fascinated about your work because I find it so interesting that you can. Um, bring all these sounds together, you know, all these different instruments that you can, you have the ability to make it sound like one sound almost. So, yeah, yeah, because when you, when you study a score, uh, the the thing is that you, you have sometimes 60 lines, you know, and you need to reduce them into one musical object. It has to be one thing. And it's like one image, one and in this image are many signs, of course. And if there is a mistake or anything that you need to uh, change or improve, it's because one element of this one thing doesn't work or could be improved or can be changed or can be. So, but it's important. So many people ask me always the same question. How how can you read all those lines uh, at once? I'm not reading all those lines as one. No, No human... I can follow 60 lines uh, at once. It's impossible. Yeah. So you need to learn them and know them very well until it's it's one object, you know, it's one object. Because there is a lot of doublings and uh, a lot of lines are doubling uh, each other. And many of many times, the, for instance, the flutes are doubling the violins. And on the line of the violins, you have 12 or 16 or 20 first violins, but it's one line. So that's the same process for all the score. It has to become one object one musical object and you cannot you cannot possibly follow 60 different uh, objects it has to become one object and that's where you can find for instance uh, uh, if one player out of one 120 players if one player make a mistake you can spot it immediately if you have if you succeeded into having one sound one musical uh, object in your mind and you're observing, and then in that one object, in that in that one picture, there is something that is faulty. Uh, that's how you learn the score. But if you try to follow 120 players simultaneously, you you will you will never spot uh, not only the mistakes, but the the details that you need to uh, work on, improve, um, etc. Which is the purpose of the conductor. But you've traveled, or you travel all over the world, and you've um, conducted many different orchestras. Is it easy for you to 
get to sort of um, uh, connect with the orchestra? Well, with uh, especially with um, experience, yes. At the at the beginning, uh, that was my biggest challenge was to and fear. I would say when I was <laughs> when I was very young, when I started uh, a new series of concerts with a new orchestra, uh, I was I was absolutely terrified, you know, to to be put in in front of a group of sixty or eighty or one hundred people that I didn't know. And with the experience uh, came the well, just the joy. So I'm I'm always happy to meet, especially a new orchestra. I'm very happy to meet an orchestra that I know very well. But for the Vienna Philharmonica, I I was in May in at the Staatsoper in the opera, and that was my 250th performance with them. Amazing. So, so of course it's always a joy. But as well, I must say, it's an orchestra that could be terrifying. I remember when I did uh, one day a rehearsal with them at the Musikverein of Mahler Fifth Symphony and Bernstein Second Symphony. It was uh, five years ago. I had already I had already more than 200 performances with them, so I, I knew them very well. But again, it was Fifth Symphony, Mahler in the Musikverein, and I was totally terrified again. <laughs> really? <laughs> Although many, many of them are friends. Yeah. But it was just the, the pure fact that I was in the Musikverein where, where, where Mahler himself was standing when he, when he first made okay. the, the Fifth Symphony sound for the first time. So I let, I, it's very rare that I let my emotion uh, overwhelm me to the point that I, I become terrified. But that that happened to me again, you know. That was four years ago. So, <laughs> well, even a young, yeah. Well, a young conductor once said to me that um, the orchestra smell the fear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and some of my good friends in the orchestra said, "Well, you you you, you look you look very very stressed. Mm -hmm. I mean, why? I mean, we are all all friends. It's the, yeah. But um, and it was an emergency. I was jumping in for." Um, Laurie, um, Zubin Mehta who was sick and um, that was a combination of all those things yeah but that's mm -hmm. true and it's like I always used to say that an orchestra is like a horse so you cannot you cannot lie to a horse the horse fears feels immediately if, if the rider is uh, is uh, is afraid yeah and then uh, it can be terrible it can be terrible for the rider <laughs> yeah but what is it about Vienna? Do you think that uh, musicians uh, love to come here and sort of all aspire to come to Vienna? Well, it's it's, a, it's not exaggerated to say that it's a capital of music because, uh, you know, I read, I read recently a beautiful text by Stephen Zweig, uh, who was already in Paris and would never come back to Vienna. It was in 40, 1940. And he was he wrote a beautiful homage to to Vienna, and where he explained all the story of Vienna, this Roman first of all this Roman uh, colony that was built as a uh, you know by the Roman army to to stop the the barbarians from coming from you know from Mongolia from uh, all these parts uh, of uh, Europe of the east of Europe. So it was built there, but it was immediately. Um, it was it became immediately very important for the culture and Marc Aurel wrote uh, his memories that that is one of the most beautiful books of the Roman times and then very quickly not very quickly but like a thousand years after it started started music to be there and music became became very important very quickly until uh, it's an alchemy between between the land and you don't know why, why, why Vienna? Why not Berlin? Why not? But but Vienna is totally uh, it was totally a, a city of culture, of course, of any kind of culture, of painting, of literature, of etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But music became the most important thing, and Twige explains how even in the political sphere, like the the emperors, the emperors were always giving the priority to the musicians, I and mean, there there was some very important. Uh, aristocrats, princes, especially the, the, the prince who was um, taking lessons from Beethoven, would let Beethoven insult him. 
and call him names, you know, mm-hmm. when when he would not uh, do as Beethoven wanted. You know, he would call him pretty names. See, you're you're a you're an idiot. You're a donkey. You're a, you're a, <laughs> he called him a, a donkey, which is uh, in English I don't know, but in in German it's not really du bist ein Esel. Yeah, he would even yeah. say him do, you know. And that the prince would have put to jail anybody who would talk to him like that. But it was Beethoven. It was a musician. It was a great composer. And when Beethoven was threatening to leave Vienna, um, all the aristocrat uh, made a, a collect of money to to be able to give him a rent, a pension for life. Who was extremely generous. And Beethoven, of course, decided to stay in Vienna because they, they were offering him a lot of money, a monthly salary for life, wow. uh, with the condition to stay in Vienna. So that's how important music is in is in Vienna and is in Vienna, and that's why so many musicians who are not from Vienna uh, came to Vienna. Actually, you know that Zweig explained. I know I didn't check that that fact, but Zweig explained that Schubert is the only real Viennese composer. All the other compo- composers came from outside really? Vienna, Austria probably, Austria of course, but Vienna, yeah. Vienna itself, no. Mm-hmm. Not Beethoven, not not Mozart, not Schumann, not uh, but Schubert. Wow, Schubert was there. I didn't and, know that. Yeah, yeah. And it, when I hear Schubert, I I I can smell Vienna, and I spent spent a lot of years and in, in Vienna, so it's my it's mm-hmm. almost my second home, you know? and for that reason, yeah. But um, tell me now, and you also you've been to Dresden now recently. Uh, yeah, for the Tales of Hoffman, yes. I've done uh, quite a lot of Tales of Hoffman recently. <laughs> I had uh, this Tales mm-hmm. of Hoffman in Dresden that I premiered. I mean, it was the, the first performance was in 2016, a new production. Uh, we had 2017 and then a long break. And now we are reviving that production. And immediately after the day after the, the last performance, I went to Vienna, to Venice. Which is my 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 other uh, second home. Oh, really? <laughs> and uh, I love Venice for the same reason that music music was extremely important in in Venice as well. It was always it has always been very important. And a lot of musicians went there. Wagner died in Venice, and uh, a lot of um, great composers, all the great composers, have been in Venice once or another time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the day after the last Hoffman in Dresden, I went to Venice for a new production of Hoffman again. <laughs> it was a combination so you, of... Yeah. And all this travel, uh, the traveling, uh, does it get to you? Does it tire you a bit? I'm traveling much less than, uh, I would say, a diplomat. Or, when you see all those people, all those... All those uh, you know people who are traveling all the time for diplomacy, yeah. for police, or, or businessmen. Or mm-hmm. I'm traveling much less than those people. You know, I've been doing yeah one one trip to Riga in September, one trip to Dresden, and one trip to Venice. That's one. That's one one flight uh, every month. That's not so oh, much. Okay. So it's not too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I love to travel, but I don't like the hectic travels. You know, like. Uh, oh, yeah. Packing your coffer, you're you're packing uh, your bags and then unpacking and then the packing the next day. And no, that that, that I don't like. I like to be, yeah. uh, I like to be in a place for a couple of time to to have the time to you know to simmer, like we yeah. say. Uh, mm, not the yeah, rushing. Let, yeah. Mm. No, because the rushing doesn't bring you anywhere. It, exactly. And I, I realized even for, you know, having so many concerts one after another. I did that when I was younger, but now I like to I like to to have the time to mature it, to to prepare my concert. To I see so many conductors today who are doing uh, hundreds of concerts, and as a result, I don't see a lot of conductors conducting by heart anymore, which has been always my my rule. I, I as far as I can, ex- except when it's an extremely complex contemporary piece with. Uh, tons of signs for every bar where you cannot memorize it except that if you spent a lot of and it's not worth it uh, but except for that I always count it by heart because I think it's uh, it's a good discipline uh, it's a good it's showing respect to the musician it's showing them you know I know the piece you can trust me I know where I'm going 
And uh, all the great conductors of the past that I love and cherish, they conducted by heart. And I think uh, it's not just to show off or something like that. It's maybe, uh, first of all, it's making yourself available for watching the musicians. Kanford Wengler, for instance, is one of my gods, said you have to watch the musicians all the time, all the time. And um, not like some conductors who conducted with their eyes shut, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Even if if he is one another one of my gods, but um, I think this idea of conducting with your eyes shut is not a good idea. Mm. It worked with him, but you you cannot do it if you're not uh, Herbert von. Uh, but I think conducting by heart is important, and especially with the opera, because the opera you have to you have to synchronize the pitch with the stage. You have uh, tons of things happening all the time with the staging. Uh, so if you're not available with your eyes, you know, you conduct a lot. Uh, a conductor conducts a lot with his eyes, you know. So if uh, half of his time uh, is dedicated to watching a score that he should know by heart, what can he do? I mean, you don't have enough of two eyes. You know, I would like sometimes to exactly. be a, to be a fly, you know, with a uh, hundred eyes, you know, yeah. one of the eyes around, around my head. And <laughs> I think the musician would be scared. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sometimes they say, they, told, they, say that, they say that about Gustav Mahler, that with his two eyes, he was sometimes terrifying the musicians. Really? He, he had an intensity in his look, in his mm-hmm. glaze that was, uh, that was unique. And some musicians... Could not even breathe when when he was staring at them, you know. Yeah. yeah, but I but I think also the audience sense that you do something, you know, that you conduct with your heart, because I think this energy also um, goes to the uh, orchestra and then also to the audience. Yeah, actually, uh, with your of course you conduct with your heart, of course. Um, but you conduct uh, the conductor conducts uh, for the orchestra. Um, sometimes I've been asked, uh, "Are you thinking of the audience when you are you thinking of touching the audience when you conduct?" Uh, no, I'm, I'm, my job is to touch the musicians, and that's the musicians' job to touch the audience, because oh, yeah. uh, it's like a pianist. Um, uh, the pianist needs to make music with his piano. He needs to communicate to the piano. Uh, is feeling and then the piano will communicate to the audience and and first of all you always you're always with your your back turned to to the audience i never see the audience except when i arrive i bow and then when i'm finished and i bow again that's only the two only moments where i see the audience so i have no contact with the audience i have all my all my availability all my money is to the orchestra so i need to inspire the orchestra and then they will send it back to the audience. But uh, the audience will, uh, the, the audience will be, of course, very, sometimes it's a, not a good thing, but the audience is watching the conductor and sometimes they they hear what they see. You know, if the conductor I, is is very motionless and cold, uh, the, the audience can be embarrassed and think, well, oh, this guy is so cold or this woman is so cold and uh, oh, we don't feel anything because it's what they see. Uh, yeah. There were so many, so many of my younger colleagues are, 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 are sometimes a little bit jumping uh, uh, too much and making a lot of funny things, you know. But mm-hmm. to impress the, the audience, which is the, another another way of, um, uh, I, I think, of being wrong because you can distract mm-hmm. you can distract the audience from the music. That's what uh, coming back to Mahler. I'm sorry, but it is mm-hmm. my idol, you know. And Mahler was famous for being extremely. Um, extremely um, uh, expressive with his body, extremely moving a lot, extremely versatile. When he was conducting the rehearsals, in the rehearsal, he would he would jump in every direction. They would they, they made caricature of him. They, some people draw sketches, uh, caricatures of Mahler conducting in a rehearsal. But everybody said that during the concert, he was very economic and he was mm-hmm. moving, he was moving much less and not jumping in every direction. He was extremely... Yeah, sober. Mm-hmm. It was extremely sober because all the work has been done. The musician knew what they had to do, and he was not trying to. Um, he was not trying to inspire them because they were already inspired by the rehearsal. So they would give. Uh, and I've experienced that after I read that, because I always thought 
conductor needs to be more expressive during the concert than during the rehearsal, precisely because he cannot stop and explain, etc. And he needs to as well to show the, the audience that he is, uh, yeah, he needs to inspire the audience as well, because that's the big problem. The audience will be influenced by what they see of the conductor. Yeah. And that's the and That's same true. with the pianist. Yeah. Same with pianist. You know, same with pianist. My piano teacher, Aldo Ciccolini, was a great Italian pianist. And I, I dream sometimes they would shut down the lights of the of the of the concert hall and just put a light, put a spot on the hands, and the, the audience will only see the hands of the pianist. Because sometimes I feel I have to do a lot of show uh, to to show the to to, to ensure the, the audience that I am inspired. Although I like to be emotionalized, you know, like Lakorvis or like Rubinstein, who were some of the most incredibly expressive pianists, but they were they were not moving so much. You know, they were not moving so much. So it's a, it's a problem. That's why I love the organ because the organist is hidden and you cannot see the oh, organ. Yeah, you can yeah. only you can only hear what he's doing. But it is sometimes also distracting when somebody is really, you know, doing all these gestures and it doesn't mean anything with the music but it's mm. it's then distracting like you say yeah and some people even professionals uh, are, are are convinced are excited by this and and they they buy it you know they buy it yeah, although yeah. although as you say it has it has nothing to do with the music and it's certainly too much i mean it, it's not exactly. needed it's absolutely yeah. not needed and uh, it has nothing to do with uh, age or experience i think it's it's probably a it has to be to do with how much insecure you are i mean when you're insecure you you need to show off you know to and when you know really what you're doing um you can do less and certainly you have not reached that level but when you become a legend like like Karian, etc you you can barely move a little finger and, and the orchestra would, would, would play incredibly oh, well <laughs> because because the blink of the eyes from those people, from those great conductors, can produce uh, incredible results. Mm -hmm. When the audience will, of course, not see anything of that because it's it's too small. You know, it's, yeah. it's too small. Yeah. At some at some point, some of those conductors, they I think they conduct only with their thoughts. You know, <laughs> it's telepathic. It's telepathic. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's so true. Um, but tell me, how do you wind down after a concert? Or a, or a um, an opera that you've conducted. Even how do I cool off? Yeah, why, uh, do you go for a meal, or do you ha have a glass of wine, or is there something? Do you have a little ritual that you do? No, I have no ritual at all. It can be, it can be either or. I just know that the, especially after a long opera, the longest, the longest the concert. The longest it takes to cool off, you know, to because um, the the level of adrenaline is probably like a sport when you do a long. Uh, I don't know about tennis players. Only no John McEnroe that I met one day with one of the Pink Floyds, and we talk about how, how much time it takes after a concert. Uh, it was Roger Waters who was the leader of the bass bass player of the Pink Floyd, and we we talked about how do we what do we do after a concert, the same as you do. And um, McEnroe said this thing that I, I found so true for conductors. Or said, "Well, the longest the match, uh, the longest it takes to to cool off, and because the, you have so much energy, you must search so much adrenaline, so much uh, um, so much hormones, you know, going through your body that it takes a long time to to evacuate all that. So, yeah, yeah uh, spending hours reading, watching TV, uh, going out with friends in restaurants, etc." It's certainly, yeah. Sometimes I I go I go home and just go to bed because I have to catch a plane the next day and uh, not not recently, but I, I I did that for a long time. But it's not it's not fun. It's not fun after you uh, you had to to interact with two of three thousand people. It's not very funny to to go home alone and uh, yeah, you know. But it it doesn't it doesn't happen frequently. I mean, frequently people like to. It belongs to yeah. It belongs to most of the rich. You know, there is a, since you are in Vienna, there is a restaurant that stays open very late. I'm not doing any publicity here, but it's in Anagasa behind the Staatsoper. It's called Sole. And Sole is an institution in Vienna because all the artists of the Staatsoper, of the Musikverein, of the concert house gather 
because it's in the center of this triangle. Ah, okay. uh, and the it's a restaurant that, that stays open very very late because uh, you meet uh, you meet absolutely everybody. That's a the last time I saw Rostropovich, uh, that was there. The last time I saw Lauren Mazel, it was there. Or Pierre Boulez or Daniel Barenboim or or even I mean the schauspieler, I mean uh, actors, uh, you name it, and you know, painters. Uh, yeah, so right. there is a there is a part of nightlife that be, belongs to this kind of uh, life. Mm. But um, well, in Vienna, in Vienna again, you know, in Vienna, everything related to the music is different. And in Vienna, the the restaurant, the cafe life, the cafe life is very important. The social life in the cafe and. The biographer of Gustav Mahler said that the reason, one of the reasons why he failed after ten years, and had to resign from the Staatsoper, is because he didn't want to, he didn't want to bind to that, uh, to bow to this uh, tradition. He didn't like that. He liked to go to the Imperial Cafe that was very, but that was a bit further. Yeah. But um, but next to the opera, it was uh, everybody used to go to the Zacher, but he didn't want to go to the Zacher. He went to the Imperial and didn't want to meet the critics. Uh, to and it's not um, if you do that in Vienna, uh, you 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 does you don't survive very long because obviously, obviously it's a long tradition since the time of Schubert. Actually, you had to go to the coffee where you would meet uh, the critic. You would meet. Uh, uh, politician you would meet uh, and it's still it's still very we don't have that in Paris we don't have the equivalent of that in Paris mm -hmm. but in mm -hmm. Vienna there's uh, this cafe uh, social life uh, is extremely important it's like, it's like the, the clubs in in London mm -hmm. if you don't belong to a club in London you, you you're not you're not even you don't, you don't exist yeah. <laughs> yeah no I know Vienna you you have to be part of that social that social light, you know, and and uh, no, I know about that. And in Paris, in Paris, it's uh, at home. They are salon, you know. They are musical oh, salon. Okay. They are. It's it's more at home. It's um, I, I know I know that because I mean I have, I have a lot of friends in Paris who are um, who are very influential and very powerful, and they have their own salon at home where they organize their. I, I used to live 20 years on a houseboat in Paris, and that was my little salon where I, I invited really? regularly people. Mm. So it's happening at home in Paris. Mm. But in, in Vienna, it's definitely happening in a cafe or in some restaurants. Yeah. Well, I love that at home idea. I think that's yeah. very intimate. Yeah. It's lovely. Well, of course. Yeah. If, of course, if you read the, it's very difficult to find today, but the book, the recollections, I mean, the memories of Arthur Rubinstein. He was uh, he, he was a very faithful and very uh, he, he, he was a very frequent guest of all those salons in every city of the, of the of the world. He knew all the salons in Paris, in London, in New York, in in Madrid, etc. And he, there was one of Coco Chanel, for instance. Coco Chanel had a very very beautiful salon in Paris where she where she would organize concert, and you would meet Stravinsky, you would meet Torovitz, you would meet uh, all those people. And he explains how important it was. And Coco Chanel had, had invented this incredible technique, an incredibly efficient technique. When she wanted to have a lot of fabulous people in her salon, she started to pretend, uh, calling uh, calling one and saying, you know, uh, calling, she was calling Mr. A and saying, you know, Mr. B is coming. Okay. Oh, he's coming. So she, then after she was calling Mr. B and said, you know, Mr. A is coming. Oh, he's coming. So she would have both. You know, but at the at the beginning, no, none of the, none of the no, two really. were, were coming, you know. And it's, it's a very efficient technique. I'm using it all the time. It works all the time. Yeah, I'm going to try that. <laughs> Absolutely. When you want to invite someone that you could not possibly hope yeah. to have at home, it's enough to say, you know, another person that is very important, probably for the first person, is coming, and then both are coming. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Great, in Vienna, idea. Great idea. Yeah. I have a good friend in Vienna was an incredible salon. She had, she's called Sissi Strauss. I don't know if you know Sissi, but... Uh, no. Desi Strauss was one of the producers of the Metropolitan Opera in, 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 in New York. And she had one of the best salons uh, just next to the Metropolitan Opera. And after every performance, she was organizing a, a pasta party. 
So mm. she uh, she decided when she moved back to Vienna because she's Viennese to to move that salon to Vienna and uh, uh, sometimes she has two hundred people at home. You know, really? she can Amazing. barely walk. You know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. she she's uh, she's a very she's very. Parisian, you know, I would say. <laughs> mm, mm. Amazing. Well, it's it can be done in Vienna. So. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it can be done in Vienna. But 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 the real tradition is again the coffee. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Frederick, now tell me, you've done so much already, but is there still wishes for you for the future? Well, yeah, of now course. that we get to the new year. Of course, yeah. You know, my. Um, most of my uh, life is dedicated today to my composition because I I signed four years ago with a universal edition in Vienna, which is the historical historical um, publisher of Mahler, of Schoenberg, of Bruckner, of etc. And now um, it of course gave a very nice uh, impulse to my composition activity. So. Uh, what I wish for myself now is to to write more and more, and as a conductor to collect my own pieces, uh, which is uh, of course always a, a big pleasure. Because I, as I, I, I always used to say, you know, <laughs> uh, Brahms, Schubert, uh, Schumann, they don't need me, but uh, my my babies, they need they need me. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there are there are there are plenty of people who. We can do the classicals uh, mm -hmm. as good and even better as as I do, but only I can conduct my pieces right now as they should be because only I know. And that's when you're when you're a composer and a conductor, and sometimes it seems to be difficult for some people to accept that you can be both. But yeah, there are so many so many examples in the past. I don't know what is the problem, you know. But we are talking about Strauss, Mahler, uh, and you name it. There are a lot, a lot. Even Wagner was a very good conductor. Berlioz was a very good conductor. I don't know where is the problem today. So to accept the last one was Bernstein, of course, Leonard Bernstein. So I don't know what is the problem of uh, comprehending that you can do both. But well, that's, that's, that's it. Well, I, so, I can, yeah, I can imagine that it's nice to do that. You know, so because you know what you want, you know what it's supposed to sound like. Yeah, and it's uh, it's just a great feeling, you know. I I love to conduct, so for me to be conductor, it's uh, it's a wonderful uh, activity. It's uh, it's one something that I I like it physically. I I like it mentally. I like it. It's it's overwhelming, you know. It's an activity that uh, that takes your entire body. Playing the piano can be physical, of course, but you're you're sitting, you're moving only your arms and your fingers. You 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 don't have to much move your body too much. Otherwise, you can literally. Uh, you can derail, <laughs> but um, yeah. um, conducting conducting requires uh, all the body. So it is. It's like a it's like a sport. You know, it's it's creating endorphins. It's creating a lot of hormones that uh, that are the same that when you're you're doing sports, you feel you you just feel incredibly good. You know, physically and mentally. Uh, so and and musically, it's a fabulous feeling to see that you're. You can impulse the music by just doing gestures. You, you don't produce the sound yourself. It's magic. Yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I cannot I cannot give that up. But when, in addition, what I'm conducting is my own music, then it's uh, it's a fabulous uh, it's a fabulous joy, you know, and it's a fabulous feeling. Sometimes it can be a torture when I realize that what I can what I compose is not as as good as I expected. But oh, really? I, I'm trying I my best. I can't imagine to... that. <laughs> yeah, no, but it happens, especially when you're when you start. But the more experience you have, and um, I would say now it's like I have some friends who are excellent cooks, you know, professional cooks, and they're the three stars uh, cooks. Uh, you see, in America, five stars, but in France. Uh, the rating is three stars for the maximum. You know. The three stars, Michelin, the three stars, Michelin, as we say, they they all tell me that no, it's very rare that they have a bad surprise. They they, they can imagine in their head the recipe, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. they, they cook in their head. I mean, it's difficult for people sometimes to understand, to comprehend that you can re read the score and hear the music in your head. And But for me, it's difficult to comprehend that you can cook in your head. 
yeah. From the big chef, they they know exactly what will be the mixture of that fish with that herb with that and cook that way and adding these and the other ingredient that nobody had mixed before, but they know already how it's going to taste and to smell. That's for me. It's uh, it's incredible that. Yeah. I can't imagine that. I mean, that doesn't yeah. happen to me. My my creations always surprise me in a, not a good way. <laughs> well, it's it's matter of experience, as I said. The more the more you do, yeah. you do it. The, the the less is the probability the probability that the, the result will be bad. Yeah. Or disappointing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But Frederick, this was so great to talk to you. Same here to, to, to have a very great yeah, pleasure to talk to I, you. I would like to add a wish for you. Um, and I wish that you could go to Cape Town and go to conduct in South Africa one day. Oh, that's my wish. I, I, I had an opportunity a couple of years ago and it, it was cancelled at the last moment for, for um, well, because of COVID. But um, I really dream, uh, I, everybody who was there told me that it's one of the most fabulous uh landscape in the world um, and the most breathtaking panoramas and the great orchestras as well. I've, I've, I've heard great reports about some colleagues about the orchestras there. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, one of the parts of the world where I've never been and I dream to go. Well, let's... Cross fingers the fingers. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go well. soon, yeah. Thank you very much and um, have a lovely Christmas and all the best for, for 2024. Happy Christmas to you and everybody in uh, South Africa and Cape Town. Thank you very and, much. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye, <laughs> Frederick. <laughs>